thank you so much for tuning back into 866 Politics. This week's episode is a continuation of last week's episode, so if you haven't listened to part one, pause now and go listen to that. If you have, then please enjoy our continuation of the discussion on global reproductive rights in light of Texas's new abortion law. Um, hi, everybody. My name is Elon Watson. I am a sophomore political science major at Howard University, and today I will be your hyster- excuse me your historical analyst. Celia, you can go next if you want to. <laughs> so my name is Celia. I am a high school senior from Spain, and today I'll be your human rights uh, analyst. Yeah. And Emily, do you want to share like your whole deal? <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Um, so like I say, I'm Emily. I'm one of the Latin American cor- correspondents at 866 Politics. I'm a journalist and I'm currently studying for a, a diploma in investigative journalism with the Universidad Diego Portales. Um, yeah. And I'm a history major as well, or I was. <laughs> in Honduras, it's the only country in Latin America where all forms of abortion, contraception, and emergency contraception is illegal. So basically, if you have sex and you get pregnant, like, that's it, you know? I think that's also, like, getting to, uh, like, the topic of, like, sex education, which I don't, Celia may or may not cover that, like, later on, but just, like, briefly, like, I know in my state of Georgia, like the Georgia law is teaching abstinence only. So you can teach like STDs, but you have to say the only way to not get this is to literally not have sex. And we know teenagers like are going to do that. And then um, when you have laws like the one that you were talking about, where it's like it's completely illegal, then like the the consequence, it, they're not educated appropriately to not face the consequence, if, if that makes sense. And what I'm trying to say, it's like the, not only is the law bad, but it's like okay, if you want people to, like, stop having abortions or, or like, whatever, then you kind of have to teach them how to avoid those behaviors that might cause that act. Um, anyways, just thought I would also add that in there. Well, leading on from that, um, I was going to talk about, there's some really strong and amazing feminist movements in Latin America who cover a lot of different topics in the realm of women's rights. Um, and part of that is what's called the green scarf movement or the green scarf tide or wave um, so you may have seen after abortion was legalized in Argentina um, in December 2020 there are a lot of celebrations on the street and a lot of women were wearing like green neckerchiefs so that's very symbolic and it's very historical symbol relating back to um, the dictatorship in Argentina and like women going out to fight for rights generally not just women's rights um, and that's where it it stems from, but it, it kind of is adapted in different social justice movements these days. So um, on those bandanas in each country, they have a different slogan. So the one in Argentina, for example, was said the national campaign for the right to legal, safe and free abortion. And this is the, the bit. So it says sexual education to decide contraception not to abort and legal abortion to not die. And that kind of like sums it up, right? That is yeah. what reproductive rights mean. Exactly. That's perfectly like, yes, perfect. Like abortion is the last resort, right? That's kind of the last stage. But there's so much that comes before that um, in terms of reproductive rights. Um, and then in Chile, they also have kind of adopted the green neckerchief. Um, they have a different band, they have a different slogan on that. So there says liberated, safe, and free abortion. The three courses are not enough. So that refers back to the three courses um, 
under which an abortion is legal in Chile, which are threat to the mother's life, fetal deformity, and the case of rape, I think. Um, and then Ecuador also have their own, which says liberate, liberate abortion Ecuador. Um, so like Elan said in the US, this is kind of not a, an issue that's moving in one direction. There are, there are gains and then there are pushbacks, right? All, all the way through. So for example, in Chile, therapeutic abortions, so abortions that are carried out because there's a threat to the mother's life, they were legal until from kind of the 1930s until the military dictatorship in 1973. And then abortion stayed completely illegal until 2017, which is so recent, right? And like Chile's a member of the OECD, it, they kind of see themselves as a very advanced country, as being quite different from the rest of Latin America in certain ways. This very conservative law. Um, and I think what's interesting about the case in Chile is that medical, even though these abortions are only allowed in those cases that I mentioned, which are pretty like severe circumstances, right? And kind of the most extreme conditions under which to have an abortion, medical professionals are allowed to conscientiously object. So say you go to your doctor and you say, like, I need an abortion, I've been raped, I do not want to have this child that I didn't consent to creating. A doctor can say, I don't want to do it. I disagree with the concept of abortion. I will not carry out this procedure. Like morally, they can say personally. Wow. That's so again, it's like shifting that power over who has control over a woman's body. So that woman has decided this is what I want to do with my body. And a medical professional has said, no, and not on any kind of medical grounds, right? This isn't to do with like this is unsafe for you or this is going to be harmful to you this is like I morally oppose this and so I am going to take control over your body and it's interesting because here in the United States a phrase that is used a lot when we're talking about reproductive rights and abortion is saying this is an issue that it shouldn't be political as Elon said earlier it is between herself and her doctor like you always hear that and her doctor part and I think here in the U.S. obviously that's interpretive like okay like her doctor can help her determine like the medical risks or can help her say like how like at what point is her body going to kind of like start reacting to this baby like uh, poorly um, and it's interesting that in that context like it's up to the her and her doctor but in, in a different context if that makes sense like that I, that's super interesting I didn't know that existed and then in Argentina like I mentioned abortion was um decriminalized in all cases just in December last year and it it was a huge moment for um feminists and for people fighting for reproductive rights across the whole region and it brought a lot of hope for a lot of the region as well and uh, people kind of hoped there would be like this this wave of legalization and reduced restrictions um but unfortunately we saw in Honduras a move the other way so bearing in mind like Honduras always already has um the strictest laws on abortion you possibly could have you have no access to contraceptives no access to emergency contraceptives they changed the law so it would become a lot harder to legalize abortion in the future so people tend to say that it's made it impossible for the law to change. And I'm not really kind of comfortable with that phrasing because I think something can always change. But basically, I think now it's enshrined in the Constitution. 
So it's not just a case of changing the law, it's a case of changing the constitution, which is a lot harder to do, right? Um, and then we also saw just this week, which Ella brought to my attention, um, and it hasn't really been covered a lot in the media, and I'm really disappointed in that, because this is huge, um, that Mexico decriminalized abortion across the whole country. So previously, go Ella. Oh, I was just going to say, we recognize that Mexico is part of North America. I realized like after I sent that message to you that you're covering like Latin America, I was like, I hope she doesn't think that I am like stupid. Mexico is part of North America, but it has lots of Latin influences. It's in close proximity to those countries. It culturally takes from them, et cetera. It, they interact with each other. So I thought I'd just add that in there just to clarify. Well, I mean, there's like a whole debate about what is Latin America. Personally, mm -hmm. I would always include Mexico and Latin America. Yeah. Um, obviously, it is North America, but Latin America isn't like a, a defined by geography, right? Right. So you've got Central America and South America and the Caribbean, okay. but different parts of those are all included in Latin America. Okay, so, so completely wrong. That makes me feel better. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, so yeah, they decriminalized abortion across the whole country. Previously in Mexico, it works state by state. Um, so it had been decriminalized in Oaxaca in 2019 and also in Mexico City in 2007. Um, but so it kind of it's not like that surprising. It's not that novel or groundbreaking for Mexico, but it also is in a lot of ways because under the AMLO administration, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, I think his name is, um, who's the current president of Mexico, he has he and his government have really worked to stigmatize the feminist movement in Mexico. There's been a lot of violence against feminist gatherings um, and protests. And that, like these are women on the street gathering to say, like, we don't want to be killed for being women anymore. Or like, we don't want the governor to be a rapist or like major things. And the government has run like this massive PR campaign to stigmatize the feminist movement as like foreign interference or is against Mexican values um yeah go Ella I'll just say Celia do you want to say something yeah uh I want to say something like kind of just to bring a little bit of happiness to the whole conversation both times when Argentina legalized abortion and when Mexico legalized it like last week I think it was uh my friends from those countries would just like send us audios like what about it's like crying super happy and it was like really really emotional and there wasn't that like videos on like protests and this not like i don't want to say protest i want to say like more celebrations on the streets with like all of these like everything was green which is like a feminist side it was like amazing yeah and, and that's like so important i think as well the emotion in the celebration shows how important this is for women just to like have that freedom and that kind of security and knowledge that their bodies are at least now a little bit more in their own in their own power, right? In their own control. So yeah, as I say, this was like a major breakthrough in the feminist movement, given that they've been framed as an enemy of the state by the current government. Um, and just a few years ago, the Supreme Court had rejected an appeal filed by a feminist collective um, and human rights organizations in Veracruz that would have forced the state legislature to legalize abortion. So given that it was the Supreme Court this time that said, that have legalized abortion, you know, this has changed quite a lot over in, in just like a few years. Um, also April this year, the Ecuadorian Constitutional Court decriminalized abortion in cases of rape. So they've got a bill in the National Assembly right now to um, put that into law. 
so like as you can see there are some like major advances which are super ex not exciting but like they're really positive steps for the region right and hopefully we can learn from those more than we learn from the pushbacks um but as to why these happen i don't know um so i had a look into different kind of like what we'd expect to be the deciding factors right so i had a look at the level of authoritarianism um on or by freedom houses global freedom scores so there is some tendency to have harsher abortion laws in more authoritarian states but that's not a rule right so we see like these scores are out of 100 and um, we see that honduras for example has a score of 44 nicaragua also has like a pretty low score mexico kind of hovers around the middle so mexico has just legalized abortion honduras and and Nicaragua is totally illegal, just to remind you. Argentina and Uruguay, where it's totally legal, have high scores, but then also Chile is really high on that list where it's only legal in certain cases and if your doctor agrees to it, right? So then I looked at the percentage of seats occupied by women. This is according to the World Bank. So um, again, in Honduras and uh, let's just, yeah. So in Honduras and El Salvador, we have, that's a low percentage um and then in argentina and mexico where the abortion is legal that's a higher percentage but then you've also got uruguay which is one of the most progressive countries in the region and was one of the first to legalize abortion in all cases and it's super low it's like 22 percent compared to say 48 percent in uh, mexico and 47 percent in nicaragua where it's totally illegal so then i thought okay let's look at religion as you mentioned it's um a really catholic region um that's kind of changing slightly and there's a little bit more of a shift to protestantism and evangelicalism especially um but again there's no real pattern right so um el salvador and honduras around half of the population is catholic um and quite a significant proportion of the other half of the population is protestant and then in argentina where it's totally abortion is totally legal 71% of the population is Catholic. So it's higher, right? And that's kind of a trend. I mean, I've not looked at the whole region. I've not run any kind of like analysis or like statistical magic on these figures, but this, this is kind of just like observation. And it's really hard to see why. Go Ella. Do you think, like, could one reason why just be purely because like, this is the way it's always been or like, um, I, th I know you said there's like really awesome resistance movements, but it's like, is it just like one of those things where there's not really like, you, like you said, you looked at all these like figures and like observations and there's not really a singular trend. So it, is it just like the type of thing that's like, okay, uh, a bunch of the governments in this region, like this is the law, like why would, why would we change it? Like, do you think that's like a, a valuable speculation or I don't know? I don't know like it could be it could literally just be like this is culture this is the way it is these are the beliefs in in our country right I tried to look at machismo as well but that's kind of hard to to put into figures right it's hard to quantify so I, I looked for example at um the physical or sexual violence experience experienced at the hands of a partner over the past year um 
from a Pan-American health report, I mean, the report was like all over the place. It just had statistics from any kind of year and by, it had like different definitions for who a partner was and stuff. Um, but again, that was kind of all over the place. There is like a little bit more of a trend to show that um, abortion is less restricted in countries with less um, intimate partner violence, which could be a suggestion, but again, it kind of shows a culture, right, of what's women's, what's a woman's place in society. Um, again, just want to clarify, like, I have not run any kind of statistical analysis on this. This is purely anecdotal observational evidence. Um, but I think it's quite, it's quite an interesting question, at least to try to understand, like, why are these laws and cultures so different? Go Celia. I want to also like kind of address another factor that maybe you did not cover, which is uh, in most uh, countries of Latin America, it's really like the people in the government, they are like really, really old. So like, for example, in countries where like Chile, one of the main reasons why it became legalized, it was because younger people joined the government. So I think that that's also a reason that even though there are like a lot of women or maybe they're like 70, 30 or 40, 60, if those women are not pro-choice and they are not going to advocate for women's rights, then it generally doesn't matter. Like, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even yeah. think about the like the generational divide, um, which I don't even know if you'd call it like generational. Um, that's getting into a whole separate conversation about like young people and how like technology and information has kind of affected like politics and like how we see certain issues like reproductive rights, but that's that could also definitely be a factor. I didn't think about that. Um, but yeah. So it's pretty well known that Latin America is one of the most unequal regions on the planet. Um, and economic inequality plays a massive role in access to contraceptives. So um, there have been massive improvements over the past few decades in increasing that access, but it's still not sufficient to meet modern demand. So even if you could be in a country where abortion is illegal so you're like okay i'm going to take some practical action here and you know use contraceptives you may not have access to these contraceptives perhaps because you live in a rural area because perhaps because they literally ran out um there's research that shows that women from poorer backgrounds tend to use more traditional methods of contraception so things like taking your temperature or if you're breastfeeding or all these kind of like different things of just understanding your body and using that, but it's not perfect. And then people who maybe have slightly more money use kind of bog standard contraceptives. And then women from women with the most money can use more kind of like semi-permanent ones. So things like your IUD or a coil or an implant, which are often much more effective because you can't forget to, to take them like you can with a pill or it's not going to break or whatever um so there's a massive gap in that and that's been exacerbated during the pandemic during what's been some of like the most or the longest lockdowns of the world um it's had a really heavy e economic impact compared to a lot of places so a lot of women haven't been able to move around to be able to like get to a pharmacy to access contraceptives or um or they've had like increased exposure to sexual violence and domestic abuse, um, etc. And also the supply has reduced as well. So it's, it's just like this compounding 
nightmare of issues. Um, so one estimate by the UN Population Fund reckons that um, an estimated 3.9 million women across the region would discontinue contraception due to difficulties in access in the private sector. Um, and 13.1 million would discontinue due to shortages in public services. So that totals 17 million users. Add to that another 19.7 million users who were already unable to sufficiently access modern contraceptives leads to an increase of around five percentage points um, of women facing an unmet need of contraceptives, which reverts that level back to the same amount it was 27 years ago. So it's like this massive step back. We just heard from kind of like a non-US um, perspective in terms of policies, the norm in Latin American countries in the region itself. And then we talked about like history with the US and like what's going on right, right now. But I really wanna zoom out because all these are super specific policies. And if you're listening and, and you don't really follow politics that much and you're like, okay, all these numbers, blah, blah, blah. Like, what does this even mean fundamentally for my life as a woman or as just a person, as a human? Um, I kinda wanna jump to Celia to kind of cover that. Like fundamentally, what are the arguments for abortion? Um, and like why, you know, we've been talking this whole time, all these restrictions and we've, you know, had these reactions of like, what, like, oh my gosh, it's so awful. It's so horrible. But like, why, why are people trying to live with that? So Celia, go ahead. So uh, first off, I think that it's really important to understand whether like an unborn has rights or not. Because I mean, most, one of the main arguments that pro-life is used is like, he's not born, but she has rights and stuff like that. So I wanted to go into like the United Nations official like website and search there. And there's like not a single, like there's nothing that um, says that they have rights or not, but there, I found this, which is comprehensive reproductive health services, including abortion are necessary to guarantee the right to life, health, privacy, and non-discrimination for women and girls. This is a document from 2016, 2017, but basically what they say here is that abortion should be a thing like whether the unborn children has rights or not abortion is part of the right to life which is one of the main rights that every person has i would say that is the most important right and then i also like want to address something that people don't really talk about which is the right to build it's like the freedom of belief so someone can be pro-life and that's okay according to the human rights as long as they keep their opinion to themselves like for example i can think that she is doing something wrong for having an abortion and I can not find it good. I, I, can't even kill, I can't even think that she's killing something as long as I don't enforce her to do what I'm doing, which I think that is something that a lot of politicians don't understand. <laughs> and they just feel like they have to put their opinion on other people's uh, bodies. So as long as you respect pro-choice people, you can be pro-life, that's completely okay, that's completely normal. And I first wanted to like address that so that we can have based on everything and then is why we should advocate for people being pro-choice and for people having abortions so the first thing is that what we've seen with like emily is that a lot of countries decide that rape is legal i uh, know that abortion is legal when the woman has been raped or it's been incest which basically lets up with the idea that rape is now abortion is something that should happen only when the woman is not when the woman hasn't done anything wrong so they use, they basically uh, 
are prohibiting abortion as a punishment to women, not as not because of the life of the baby. So the term pro-life is wrong because if you care about the life, then you wouldn't let the women abort if there has been a rape because you know the baby is dying anyway. And also because most uh, in most countries in Latin America or even in the US, the foster care system is horrible. There's like barely any help. So once the kid is born, like no one cares about the baby. Whether it's adopted, whether the mom can have um, can have like any economic resources to take the kid, to like have the kid grown up healthy. Also, I've heard that like having a baby is like ten thousand dollars in the U.S., which is crazy for someone living in Europe. It's just mind blowing. So it's like if you're really a pro-life person, why are you not advocating for once the kid has a life? I don't know if Ella wanted yeah, to say something. Yeah, no, I was gonna add like one of the biggest hypocrisies that has been has it kind of started off smaller here in the US, but it's just gained so much traction. I've seen people like speaking on this is is these terms pro-life and pro-choice are misleading because people who are pro-life, those are the people who are against abortion. They're advocating for the unborn. Of course, that's how they speak about themselves. We're going to advocate for the unborn, which of course you're like, yeah, yes, advocate like that sounds good. Uh, But then you look at their other policy decisions. It's like, okay, so you want to advocate for the unborn. Cool make a woman have a baby. Okay, cool. Uh, She had the baby. She's unhappy. She realizes I can't be a mom. Oh my gosh. Okay. So she go, like you were saying, the foster care system is not very well funded. It's not very well structured. And oftentimes kids stay in the foster care system for a very long time. Um, And so uh, then that child doesn't have a good life. And guess what? Newsflash, healthcare in the US, super expensive. And like you said, to raise a baby, $10,000, probably more, honestly. Uh, so you're not giving a child healthcare. You're not giving the woman healthcare because, again, like we should also be talking about the woman's life. Um, like the unborn has potential, but also this woman who may not want this baby also has potential. Um, so I think like you you started alluding to this and I, I'm sorry, I just like went on a whole rant, but I think you were saying like, yeah, the, the hypocrisy of pro-life is like, okay, so you wanna invest in life? Cool, let's invest in the green new deal. Let's, let's invest in like, you know, saving the earth because that's gonna keep us alive. Like not to revert to other issues, but it's it's very hypocritical. So anyways, that's that's my little spiel. And now I forgot to mention something before, which is also advocate for sex education. Because if you want to stop abortions, then you should stop people getting pregnant. And I kind of wanted to start here a debate. So I'm going to speak about like the amount of sex education that I got, which I think is like really, really good. I'm not going to say like it's perfect, but I got like a really good. So in my case, I was never taught not to have sex because uh, I've been having sex education since I was like 10 years old or like 11 years old. It started with the basic thing we would like understanding how pregnancy works, understanding the, the cycle that you get on your period. So for example, why you wouldn't know you're pregnant until you're like five, six weeks pregnant. And then when I, I remember like a couple of years ago, we had a talk um, where they taught us like different types of contraceptives, like the different pills we can take, uh, condoms for, for men, and then like also for women, uh, IUDs, vasectomies, which is something that no one really talks about vasectomies because they're not there for men. And actually a simple vasectomy is like, it can be reversible 90% of the times within the first 10 years. So for someone that's like 16 years old, I feel feel like it's perfect because I mean, you can really just change it whenever you're ready to have a kid. And so I was thought about that. And I also had this um, in Madrid, which is where I'm from, we had this kind of system, which if you are between the age of 16 and I don't know if it's 18 or 21, 
you have free condoms, free pills, free pregnancy tests, free abortions. And if you are less than a month pregnant, because there are kind of two types of abortions. There is the pill one, which is you just have a pill and then you're on your, you're on your pill for like 20 days, which is horrible, but like it's better than the other type, which is the surgical abortion. So if you are less than a month pregnant and you're like 16 or 17 years old or 18, you can have the pill abortion without your parents knowing. So that way they have a lot of kids getting pregnant in the first place and having that like risk of going through a surgical abortion, which is way more riskier than the pill one. So I, I just wanna know if what your experience with sex education in other countries, because I think that mine is pretty great. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> again, coming from a state that teaches abstinence only, first of all, I think it's interesting. I think that you said that, like, you, like, people are taught, like, what sex is, like, really young. Is that what you said? Yeah. Like, you said, like, 10, 11, 12. Okay, yeah. so here, I don't want to overdrive, generalize and say United States America, but um, I, I know that, like, there the school does not teach you sex like it is on the parents it's called the talk like oh did you when did your parents give you the talk and everyone finds out at different times um and my sex education was awful um like and you're saying you get all this free stuff that's definitely not the case where I'm at um at least in Georgia so it's very different it's stigmatized it's not talked about and like even people from Georgia listening to this are like, oh my God, they're saying the word like sex. Not that they're like immature listening, but it's just, you don't talk about it in school. Like everyone is like uncomfortable in the room when it's spoken about. And it's definitely like a cultural thing, but that's been my experience with sex education and it's been pretty poor. Um, yeah, so anyone else wanna share? Um, I definitely agree with that, um, at least for, for, again, in the region that I grew up in the United States. And I think also, I don't know if this is the same for you, Ella, or either anybody, but um, growing up, it wasn't even like you could use like the actual terms. Like, so um, when mentioning things like, you know, I'm going to say it like vagina, it was, that was not used. Now that is a scientific term. That is, you know, that is what that uh, you know, that anatomy is called, but, you know, you use flower or, you know, other things to kind of like um, make it less inappropriate. And I just think that it's ironic that these penis and vagina are scientific terms and we can't even use them because they're deemed inappropriate, but it's science. I just, I always thought that was like, so, you know, I just thought that was crazy. Like I even like when you kept, like, <laughs> this is so bad, but like when you like, when you kept saying it, like a part, like a part of me is just not used to it, like talking about it. Like that's how stigmatized it is. Like those, like language and words like that. It's like, oh my gosh, you know what I'm saying? It, it's like, they make you fear it. And so then you don't understand it. Anyways, go ahead, Emily. I was going to say like coming from the UK as well, which is kind of similar to Spain, right? You know, we have free healthcare here. We can, you can go to a sexual health clinic and you can go and see somebody totally anonymously it doesn't go on your medical record it's completely free you can go and get on the pill for free you can get free condoms and get a free sti test you can go and get information you just go and like have a conversation with them if you want and it like it's quite <laughs> and sometimes it's quite fun <laughs> like i used to go i've been with a couple of friends and we went when we were like teenagers because someone needed to go and get a test or they needed to go and get a pill or they went to go and get the implant or something and like we went together and one of us was sitting in the waiting room and then you'd see like someone you kind of vaguely know there and you just give each other like a little nod like 
you're right <laughs> you know and we all know why we're there and like it's fine and it just makes it so much more accessible um in terms of my sex ed like I don't really remember a lot of it um it was just kind of like this is a sanitary towel <laughs> I think it was like decent but it's got its problems and there are big gaps in terms of like looking at homosexuality and um teaching you to not really be like afraid of sexual infections and things like that um but like we weren't told to just not have sex it wasn't like I always think of the me girl sketch I don't know if you guys may be a bit too young for me girls but you know when they say like don't have sex or you'll get pregnant and die you're like oh my god (laughs) right it wasn't anything like that that's pretty much the theme of my education I was like the only way to just not is like okay cool (laughs) I'm just sitting there like and so uncomfortable too because you're 14 years old and you're in this room with like all these people and you're like oh this is so embarrassing even though no one's speaking so yeah that was my experience anyways keep going Celia or if you have something else to say Emily you're good Okay. I also want to say that I found it, I found it so funny when like you were talking about how much of a taboo it is because it reminded me when I was like in grade four, which is when I got like my first talk about like you know reproductive system things. That was exactly how I felt when I was like ten years old, and to see someone that's like older have that reaction is just way too much fun. Like what are we? It's like a kind of childish in my culture. Like maybe it's not in yours, but I also want to talk about what Emily said of being in the sexual health clinic. And something that's like something that's not spoken about either in Spain, which is that in the case that you are pregnant and you have to get someone to talk to your parents, uh, they're going to give you like therapies that are experts and they're going to be the ones contacting your parents and kind of avoiding this uncomfortable situation. Because if you're like 17 and you are pregnant, even though you've done nothing wrong, because it could have been an accident or whatever, you obviously feel guilty. And we have this, I want to say professional help, psychological help from professionals, which is something that I've actually um, appreciated a lot because I have, I know, I've known people that have been in situations where their parents were pro-life and they've been pregnant and they needed, because they, they obviously didn't want to keep the baby because they were 17 or 16, I don't remember exactly, it was like 16 or 17. And they needed to go to one of these centers and contact and be like, I need help with this. And they got a professional that was that talked to their parents and was like, hey, this is happening and your daughter needs help. And he was able to change kind of their mindset. And it was, I don't know, I just thought it was something that I wanted to point out in some like, because this thing is something that we're, we're trying to get like the whole Spain because it's, I only know, like, I only know that it's my county to call it that way. So, <laughs> I just want to say that, that yeah, I really appreciate that. And I also want to get into like the teen, teenage pregnancy situation in, in developing countries because it's way different. So for example, in countries that has accessible sex education, such as Spain, Italy, Portugal, uh, the UK, there are only seven unwanted pregnancies, unwanted teen pregnancies in like for every 1,000 pregnancies, which is really low compared to, for example, the US that has 30, 31 which is high, like it's pretty high. But then if you go to like, for example, Africa, to, to Saharan Africa, 30, no, 45% of pregnancies are teen pregnancies. And out of all these pregnancies, 45% of all of them have abortions on in unsafe circumstances, which end up with 30,000 people dying from this kind of clandestine abortions only in Africa, 
which is actually like it's, it's a number pretty similar to Latin America. I think that it was a little bit higher, but I'm not really confident. Do you know anything about it, Emily? Yeah, it's um, in Latin America, 69 out of every thousand um, pregnancy pregnancies are unintended. Um, what was the um, other bit? I just wanted to know like the amount of teen pregnancies in Latin America because I didn't have the actual number. And I was going to say like... Oh yeah, teen pregnancies is super high. It's like yeah. one of the highest, highest, I think it's the second highest rate of teen pregnancy in the world. Um, and it's the only place where that rate isn't going down. Um, so 38% of Latin American girls will be pregnant before the age of 20, which has like, I'm sure you'll talk about this, Celia, mm-hmm. like the socioeconomic consequences of that, uh, the impact on the mother's life, on the child's life mm-hmm. is huge. And I also want to talk kind of with like Ella and Elon, like I've, I think that teen pregnancy in the US is kind of like a kind of a culture because I am I'm on TikTok and it's like in Spain there's like barely any teenage girls pregnant. And it just makes me feel like in the US there are like so many, which I don't know if it's related to like abortions or that you guys have kids really early, if you could. I yeah, that's a that's an interesting like observation from the outside. I from where I am, there's not a lot. Um, I think I have, there's lots of scares. And because there is a culture of like, you don't talk about this, there's not abortion access or even like living in Georgia. Yeah, there's not a heartbeat bill, but guess what? You have to be like 18 in order to do it on your own. So then you got to tell your parents, which of course like always makes young girls nervous. And so I don't think it's like a culture of like every, like a lot of like teenage girls are pregnant. I do think that it happens more in secret. Like, I think that there's a lot of shame around it and there's a lot of fear around it because again, lack of education, lack of access to reproductive healthcare, et cetera. Um, and so, and I also think it's just talked about less. So there, like, like I said, it's, it happens in secret. So there might be a lot, but because of like, you know, the culture here, like you don't talk about it um, and, and you don't reach out either, which is the scary thing. Like, you know, you could be really close friends with someone and not know because you're scared of how they're going to react or, or, or something like that. So that, that's been my experience. What about you, Alon? Um, definitely. I think everything you talked about is absolutely correct. It's almost like, um, like you said, it's secret. It's not talked about. It's, you know, it's, it, I think, here for younger girls in the United States, um, getting pregnant and it's almost, it's almost like scary. And I feel like it shouldn't be scary to them. Cause like you said, it's like you, they, they feel shame or it was, uh, they have to keep it a secret. They can't tell anybody they have no support. And it's like a dark and lonely time when it should not be, it shouldn't be something that's shunned or turned against. Um, you know, you should be able to talk, speak openly about it and get the help and, or, you know, not help, but necessarily the tools and resources that you need without having to, you know, go behind backs and stuff. But like you said, it's just, it's not talked about enough. It's not a conversation that people have enough, especially with young girls. And I think that's the upsetting part. Yeah. And the last thing I want to like comment is what can we expect in, for example, in Texas with this law? Because I found a chart that basically tells us how many, look, how safe the abortions are, regardless of how open the laws are. So, for example, in um, in countries such as Spain, UK, where there are laws that you know legalize abortion and everything's okay, 87% of all the abortion procedures are safe. Uh, 12% of all the abortions are 
quite safe. Like they may have like, for example, the women becomes infertile, but that's because abortion at the end of the day is something that's uh, targeted towards women. So, you know, the science don't really care about it, sadly. And only 1% of these abortions are either lethal or have life-changing consequences. In countries with moderately restricted laws, such as, for example, the US and Texas, or um, some of the ones that Emily said in Latin America, 47% of the abortions are safe. 41% are, you know, with minor uh, health consequences, and 17% are either lethal or life-changing, while in countries with really, really bad restrictions, only 25% of the abortions are safe, 44% are lethal or with life changes consequences, and 31% of them are actually, you know, with minor consequences, which I think is really, really sad. And it's something that we can expect from all these states or countries that are actually implementing laws, because I feel like the number of deaths or women becoming infertile is going to increase so, so, so much. And it's really sad because for example, in my country, in Spain, what happens is that the U.S. is such an influential country that something that becomes kind of like a something that gets politicized in the U.S. suddenly gets politicized in the whole world. So, for example, abortion was not something that politics politicians in Spain talked about two years ago as much as they do right now, or you know, a lot of other issues. So that's kind of why I think that that sex law is not going to only have an impact in the U.S. but like in the whole world. And I don't I don't know if like Emily saw this. For example, we saw this in like every single thing that has happened in the US when Black Lives Matter happened in the US, the whole world went with Black Lives Matter, which is amazing. But I think that it's also going to happen with the pro-life movement and we need to like do something yeah. like that. I was just gonna say, you know how earlier I was talking about with like Emily, like um, she asked about like state laws, like how does this affect federal laws? It's not only do state laws um, in the US affect other state laws in the U.S. and eventually affect federal laws. Like you said, it can, and I didn't even think about this till now, it, it uh, sometimes like living inside the U.S. you forget how influential and powerful the country is. It can have a ripple effect to the whole world, which is why this one out of 50 states in this country making this law can change the discourse in Spain or in the U.K. Like that's why you might be thinking, oh my god, they've talked for like an hour and a half on this one law in Texas. Um, but it, it really can have this huge impact. And and I think even on top of that, when you were talking about the statistics in relation to like safe abortions, um, like in relation to like abortion access, uh, it, it, something I always have to keep in mind is like you know, sometimes I get caught up in policies and I, I get not necessarily bored, but, you know, sometimes studying policy, government policy in other countries, it's very tedious. And it's like these minor differences. And you're like, why does this matter? It, policy affects real humans. Like it, it, it affects, it, it affects human rights. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's where you're getting at it. And that's why you're our human rights analyst, Celia. But like it, like these statistics, like behind these numbers is real women who, because their country is the in that most restrictive group, like only 25% of their abortion access is going to be safe, like you said. So it's like, yeah, it, it's it's really easy, like you said, to like politicize these things, but you you kind of have to zoom out and be like, oh my gosh, politics, and, and I feel like I say this in every freaking episode, but politics matters because it influences real people and policies can work their way down all the way. And, and I think it, that's really important to emphasize. Anyways, so that's what I was gonna say. 
so yeah, politics, that's why politics matters. And that's why um, at H66 Politics, like we talk about these very like trivial issues, or may seem like trivial issues with like difference in policies and, and we get into the nitty gritty of everything. Um, but it, it is really important because it can affect you, it can affect me. And, and, and if politics, you know, doesn't affect you all the time, then that, that's a privilege that you have to recognize, um, you know, that the government's not <laughs> working against you. Uh, so yeah, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. We hope that you enjoyed us talking about reproductive rights around the world um, and kind of the implications. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening. <laughs>